Sup Freaks, this is your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Getting this one out immediately due to the timely matter of the subject at hand, which is COVID-19 and hydroxychloroquine. I sat down with Dr. James Tadaro, uh, who's been doing a lot of research on hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19. He has been through an interesting journey since the middle of March. includes censorship, uh, name-calling, and people coming at his reputation, uh, medical journal reports that have been retracted uh, that were against his stance, a bunch of crazy things. There's uh, erotic models involved in this story. I think you guys are really going to like this podcast. This is an eye-opener, and really drives home the fact that uh, you should trust, not trust, excuse me, don't trust, verify. Make sure that you're verifying everything, not only in Bitcoin, but uh, in everything that you do in life, on every subject. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. They're helping you stack sats. They're helping you send sats. They're helping you receive sats. Help you sell sats if you want to. Hopefully you don't have to, but if you want to or have to, you can do it via the app as well. On top of that, they're making sats the standard. And when you make sats the standard, you can then DCA into Bitcoin using the Cash App as well. They have a DCA function. You can set auto buys up so that you can just set it and forget it. On top of that, they're letting you stocks, slivers of stocks. Listen, I know some of you don't want to stock slivers of stocks. I just have to let you know that the option is there. All right. What is a sliver of a stonk? It's not a whole stonk. If if your favorite stonk, if you do invest in stonks and that's your thing, that's your prerogative, and you have a stonk that you're looking at, it's a little too expensive out of your price range, you can't buy a whole stonk. Cash App's letting you buy a sliver of that, of that stonk, as little as $1. Uh, because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, or it may even be your bank account, did you know that they have accounting numbers or routing numbers now and you can start direct depositing paychecks into the Cash App? Well, if you didn't, now you know. And because the Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, or it is your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods to start stacking sats and investing today. You should know that Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square, member SIPC. As always, make sure you use the code stacking sats. That's S T A C K I N G S A T S. One word. One word. One word. Stacking sats. When you download the app, if you haven't done so already, you're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends, Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. I had one of these hanging out my window this morning, so I got some practice in. Use the code Stacking Sats. Download the Cash App today. And I hope you guys really take in this episode with Dr. James Darrow. Uh, fascinating conversation, fascinating story. We live in some pretty crazy times. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. 
there we go. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a lovely Friday morning. Very excited for this conversation. Uh, the topic we're about to cover is very controversial. Uh, this this conversation is going to cover uh, controversy, censorship, uh, manipulating data, false data, uh, the downfall of a multi-century-year-old medical journal, and uh, weird hysteria that has taken over the world. I'd like to introduce you freaks to Dr. James Tadero. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Marty. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So the subject uh, of today is hydroxychloroquine, uh, your research on the drug and how it pertains to COVID-19, particularly whether or not it is a, um, a, a drug that is helpful for patients suffering from COVID-19. And in mid-March, you dropped a report with your partner, Gregory, uh, that basically said the hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, excuse me, uh, could be used to treat COVID-19 patients with, with some success. Uh, that started a whole bunch of controversy, and we'll get into that. But before we do that, let's just lay some groundwork. Why don't you introduce yourself, explain your medical background, uh, and your cryptocurrency background as well uh, at Blocktown. Sure. Uh, thanks for that. Um, so I, uh, I received my medical degree from Columbia University in New York uh, back in 2014, it was actually my last year of medical school that uh, I first started investing in Bitcoin. And it kind of goes along with, with the narrative that, you know, I have right now is kind of censorship. You know, the exciting thing about Bitcoin was censorship resistance, and now it's kind of medicine uncensored. But uh, after I finished medical school, I went to, did my residency in Detroit, uh, four years in, in ophthalmology, so eye surgery. And then it was actually shortly after, actually immediately after residency, that I stepped away from clinical medicine. Uh, entirely just to focus on managing uh, managing cryptocurrency Bitcoin investments. Um, obviously still paid a lot of attention to medicine, which is why COVID-19 caught my eye in January. Uh, it looked like it was going to be a, uh, a tidal wave hitting Europe and the U.S. just based on kind of my experience in epidemiology and the way these viruses work. And, uh, and so in March, or actually late February, you know, just through some kind of investigative uh, analysis, you know, there's a medication that was really not discussed really almost anywhere at the time, and that was chloroquine or its closely related uh, derivative hydroxychloroquine. And what, uh, you know, I was very familiar with the drug because in ophthalmology, we screen patients all the time who take hydroxychloroquine for lupus or rheumatoid arthritis because it can have some visual effects, side effects. So I was very familiar with the medication. It's been shown before to have antiviral properties. It was actually mentioned in an article about 15 years ago um, regarding SARS-1. Um, and there was in vitro evidence of it having an effect uh, against the virus in primate cells. And there was guidelines coming out of South Korea and China where it sounded like they were using it. So there basically was a, a picture. And I think Greg, Greg, who co-authored the paper with me, he had been doing research on uh, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine uh, and its antiviral effects for over a decade, so he was very familiar with the mechanism of action. We teamed together and put together what, in my mind, was a proposal to look at this drug to see if it could be you know, as effective as, as it might be, because it's a widely, a widely available job, a drug, super cheap, known safety profile. It could be the perfect candidate uh, for treating this disease, either as a prophylactic or in, uh, in treatment of COVID-19. So we put out that paper 
And it was tweeted out by Elon Musk, I think within 24 hours, which is really kind of a big step up for the publicity of, of my Twitter account, which is where we put it up there. <laughs> I think I had about, uh, about 9,000 followers at the time. And uh, <laughs> it's been off to the races ever since. <laughs> yeah, you're up to like 35,000 now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, so then uh, my colleague Greg went on Laura Ingram and discussed what was kind of just breaking, not only just our paper, but now, uh, there was a study coming out in France that showed that it was it, it was effective in actual patients with COVID-19 um, in, in, in Europe. And um, once we broke that news, uh, then my co-author went on Tucker Carlson, uh, discussed those study results. And then the following day, uh, you know, the president's men mentioning it in a presser. And uh, it's been a controversial subject ever since. Yeah. Uh to say the least. <laughs> and so, yeah, you guys put this out in March and people started attacking you right away, coming at you for being an eye doctor, uh, scare people, scaring people away from hydroxychloroquine because it wasn't tested, even though it has been around for a year and it's a generic drug. And I was telling you before we hit record, my cousin has lupus and she takes it every day and she seems pretty healthy <laughs> and, and fine. Um, why? And on top of that, so you guys had like an open shared Google Doc that got censored as well at one point. Yeah, correct? so there's kind of a couple different directions to go. Uh, we can maybe touch a little bit more on the censorship. But yeah, the Google document was taken down, um, mm -hmm. which was pretty incredible. I didn't even know they, they really do that for Google documents. <laughs> you know, one thing is like a, maybe a, a tweet or a YouTube video or a Facebook video, but a, a Google document, that's kind of surprising. They never explained to me why they took it down either. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was really amazing. You know, Twitter, I would say overall has been a, a extremely, in my experience, at least positive. They always have the trolls, the negative people, but like you just, you know, you listen to the people that are smart, that are contributing helpful information. Um, but the, the mainstream media is where the, the real attacking and kind of, you know, name calling actually came from. Um, the Huffington Post put out an article that called us hucksters. Not, I'm not, you know, I would just, you know, a physician who's an entrepreneur who put this out there, but, uh, and then the Washington Post hit it. And so you had all the, the kind of mainstream uh, media attacking it, saying that this medication all of a sudden went from what rheumatologists call a, a daily vitamin for patients with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. It became almost the uh, most dangerous medication in the U.S., all in the matter of, of a week. You know, it first started off where there's dangerous side effects for your vision. That was the first thing that everyone started talking about, which it's true. It, it, one of the side effects can be vision loss, but that takes five years of taking this medication usually before that happens. And so as an ophthalmologist, I was able to, to quickly dispel that myth. And the American Academy of Ophthalmology came to the table and said, okay, look, in a, in a short course, this isn't really a real side effect. The next thing that was focused was bigger even. It's, it has cardiac side effects this will cause cardiac death in you. And it's true, there, it prolongs a interval on your, on your EKG, you know, you have the spikes, the ups and downs. There's a certain interval, if it gets too long, it can cause your heart to essentially go into a, an arrhythmia, which means it's not beating regularly, and it can, you, can, you can die from that. Extremely rare, this is a medication that's been prescribed uh, you know, billions of doses over the last 65 years. It's very, very rare to have cardiac death from it. Most rheumatologists won't even do an EKG on you when they start you on this medication. Yet, if you were to listen to the way this medication is described in the, in the media, 
it sounds like, oh my gosh, if I take this, my heart's going to stop. I mean, people were genuinely concerned. I don't know if genuinely concerned, but they were supposedly concerned that Trump was going to die from taking this medication for two weeks. This anti-malarial, this malarial prophylactic and, and one of the most common medications for, you know, lupus, you're going to die from a two-week course under medical supervision. It was just, it's ridiculous. It's completely asinine. That's where my like main question lies right now. Like, was this a concerted effort from like a big pharma interest to stop this generic drug because it's not very profitable for the people making it? Or was it the media just uh, stubbornly trying to disagree with everything that Donald Trump does uh, and, and supports? Yeah, that's, that's probably like the hundred billion dollar question right now <laughs> is, you know, what, what is going on behind the scenes that is uh, kind of driving all this, this energy and uh, propaganda, I would say. Um, it's tough. It's tough to know. <laughs> What goes on behind the scenes, and I don't even know if I want to know, honestly. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Like you have on the one hand, you have people say, "Oh, well, the media is just attacking it because Trump, you know, talked you know talked highly of it, so that's why they're attacking it." But there's also very big, uh, you know, there's big pharma interest behind the scenes. You have Gilead, who has a competing drug, Remdesivir, and you have almost 20% of the National Institute of Health uh, task force um, making recommendations on COVID-19. 20% of them work for or invested in Gilead. So you have direct, direct conflicts of interest uh, that kind of merge between politics and big pharma. So you might not even be able to separate those two. Maybe it's a combination. I don't know. But there's a lot of forces going on, I think, behind the scene. Yeah. Because you had Fauci come out. Uh, against it at one point the world health organization mm, yeah come out against it and it's so confusing this whole COVID 19 thing has been extremely confusing for me as an individual and i'm sure for many other people out there i can imagine uh, yep. and so let's talk, let's focus on the virus for a little bit like it's a novel coronavirus it's new we're, we're learning about it on the fly uh what's your perspective as a doctor at this given point in time, uh, how much do we know about the virus? Were expectations overblown in the beginning? Is it as bad as as previously thought, or are there still too many unknowns? Um, I think there there are obviously still unknowns, but we know a lot more than I think we knew two months ago. So, um, basically, the three questions that came to my mind back in January when it looked like this was going to be a big deal is, you know, how infectious is this virus? If it's highly infectious, then it's, it's probably going to spread to the world very rapidly. You know, there's a lot of travel. Number two is, you know, how lethal is this actually? You know, what's the actual fatality rate of this disease? It, you know, at China at the time, it looked like people were just falling dead in the street. And there's just videos of them laying there, you know, with like, the, like a you know, movie style theme where just like blood coming out of their mouth and that's that. Um, and then number three was, is there a treatment or prophylactic that can either stop the infection or reduce the, the fatality of it? And so back in, in that time, the, the only answer that seemed clear to me was that it's highly infectious. So then the question is, you know, what about the other two things? The, regarding treatment, we can, uh, you know, well, whatever, I'll talk about that real quickly. There's a lot of misconceptions on, uh, I think, hydroxychloroquine on both sides of the, the aisle, whether you're for or against it. 
So I just want to get that out of the way, I guess, right now. Um, so for people that are, are pro-hydroxychloroquine, you know, in, in medicine, there's, it's very rare to have something that is a, a, a magical cure or a bulletproof prophylactic. There is, you know, it usually will reduce your chances of getting infection or it will decrease the severity of the illness, particularly when it comes to antivirals, which is what hydroxychloroquine is, is serving in this, in this particular uh, use case. And so, uh, you know, it's not, I don't think it is a magic bullet, something that could help. And we're still kind of looking at randomized controlled trials as they come out on that. The one thing I'd say is we've been studying it all wrong. We've been, and by we, I mean the, the big organizations have been looking at in late treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized patients, which I've been saying since March, that's not going to be effective. You have to do it early. That's the only way it stands a chance. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, like we already talked about, so I'll go in much more, is this medication is unlikely to harm you, I think, much more than maybe the potential it, it helps you. Um, those are the kind of two different sides of that coin, because um, I get asked that a lot. Uh, regarding the fatality of the disease, though, now, that's like, I, I'd say that's the other big question. And so uh, I tweeted out about a month and a half ago, because someone asked me that, and I was you know, like, you know, at this point, we don't really know the true fatality rate of this disease, but my suspicion is it's going to turn out to be highly infectious and not that fatal. And this, this kind of makes sense, and it's possible that the virus even evolved that way because the virus uh, essentially succeeds by, by infecting other people. So the ideal virus from the, the virus's standpoint is to actually not get you super sick because it wants you still going to work. It wants you hopping on that plane. It wants you going to you know, family birthday parties. So you have to be well enough to go to those things. And then you can cough and touch things and spread the disease and then the virus spreads. That's, that's how it continues to, to uh, kind of uh, ex, you know, infect everyone. A virus that just kills you right away, that it doesn't give you, to, or makes you really sick, it doesn't have time to spread. So, so I think there's a chance that it already even mutated and became less, less fatal, which led uh, Joey Krug actually and I put out, as well as Dr. Zelenko, but we put out a uh, article back in April of their second report, uh, saying that it is basically time to reopen America, that the fatality rate of this was not really the 3 to 4% that the World Health Organization was saying, but it was actually, I think, lower at around 0.2%. And we put that out April 23rd, and it was just late last month, the CDC came out with their own report saying, like, yeah, it looks like the infection fatality rate is actually about 0.25%. You know, and so now I think we have a much better handle on the uh, fatality rate of this and uh, since April. And so that's, that's kind of why we proposed opening up. Yeah. And yet the country isn't open unless you're protesting. It's been crazy to see how, how quickly the, the, uh, the fear mongering around the virus has, has dissipated and basically disappeared within 10 days with yep. all this rioting yep. and protesting. I actually tweeted that out. Um, maybe it was like a, a week and a half ago. I said, you know, Governors are still trying to keep people locked down for the summer. It's, it's a losing battle. There's just no way you're going to be able to accomplish that. I mean, uh, people want to be outside, uh, especially if they don't have to necessarily maybe go to work. In a lot of cases, they're going to want to be outside. Um, I didn't anticipate the protests, so that was obviously a whole different element that, that got people out there. Yeah. Well, and that's another big question that's going around, uh, at least my family and people I'm talking to about this, is the... the uh, the second wave yeah uh, people p point to the spanish flu yeah. about a hundred years ago and there was a second wave there that caused a lot more damage than the initial outbreak um 
Fauci came out, I believe, last week and backpedaled from the second wave narrative he a little did, bit. He did. What uh, what are your thoughts on a second wave? Is this like is it this virus actually comparable to the Spanish flu in the way that you know, those waves worked? There is a uh, so it's it's a little bit tough. There's not actually a clear answer in my mind. If I were to make an educated guess, I would say the virus will uh, begin infecting more people in the fall. But again, I think the infection fatality rate will probably be low, maybe even lower than the past couple months. And so it won't uh, be as deadly as, as I think a lot of people think when they think of the Spanish flu, when you're talking about like total number of deaths, I don't think it will be as many, but that's something that like I closely watch. And so as we enter September, I think it's be very important to, to watch those metrics to see because I think there's going to be a lot of fear-mongering again. It'll be very easy to say, oh, my gosh, we have the infections are increasing. This is, you know, and everyone's always like, you know, the death count's going to skyrocket in the next two to three weeks and two to three weeks, two to three weeks. And so, you know, you, I think that that's, that's very likely to happen, at least the fear. The question will be, is it, is it real or not? And, I, you know, I think that that's going to come with, uh, with the data. And I think we'll be making an educated guess on that pretty early. Yeah. Yeah, like people are waiting for the second wave now with the protesting. Like, well, no, yeah. two weeks. It's like it's I don't, I don't, I don't think there's gonna be a huge second wave from these protests, but we'll see. Yeah, it's it's weird, and that's that's the thing that's been so confusing to me throughout all this is like how how much does the fear driven media really uh, affect our view of this virus and 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 really disturb our true understanding of, of this virus particularly and just viruses in nature um just how they how they actually work like the common cold uh is a coronavirus people get it pretty consistently year in year out the flu was pretty terrible this year and it may is that like is it <laughs> am i going to get canceled if i say this but is it sort of similar to a flu with the uh no, with you, the death rate account um so that's what, that's what Joey Craig and I put out there is you basically said, you know, going forward, uh, based on this new uh, infection fatality rate we came up with, this is comparable to essentially a, a bad flu, which is 2017, 2018 was a particularly bad year of flu. I think the mortality and the fatality rate was, I think, 0.16%. And so we're calculating just a little bit higher than that, um, which the flu, like, so you have this, we have governors, like a governor in California, Newsom, was sitting there saying, you know, you can't open up a county if you have a single death uh, within the past two weeks. And so people went from this idea of flattening the curve, which is everything we heard in, in March and April, to this idea of, you know, we won't have another death. And that's unrealistic. I mean, you don't, we don't have that mentality with the flu. So why are we having that mentality with the coronavirus? And so, and they backpacked very quickly, like Governor Newsom changed that, that part of the rule for this, entering the second stage of opening up. Uh, pretty quickly because it was absolutely ridiculous. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think there's a good chance that this, uh, this fatality rate at this point going forward could be very similar to a bad flu season. Yeah. And with the exception, with the exception that it, it doesn't actually affect kids that much. So the, the flu, right. It, you know, affects that under five and that, that elderly range. Whereas this really seems to just be focused on the elderly and nursing homes. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which highlights another inconsistency with with, uh, 
sort of people in control, like the governors particularly, like here in Jersey and New York, I believe more people died in nursing homes than the rest of the country combined. Um, nursing home deaths, it's been tragic. Some states, uh, I think Connecticut, something like 80% of the deaths in Connecticut were in nursing homes. Like, you know, that's the thing is that we spend so much time on this quarantining the whole population and fighting over who's social distancing, who's wearing masks. If you're allowed out of your house, you're allowed to go to the beach. Can you go to the park or not? That no one was really paying attention to where it kind of really mattered and the, and the vulnerable people who actually had no control over their own environment, which is the nursing homes. You know, they were just kind of ignored. Yeah, and you had Cuomo and Governor Fox here in New Jersey send yeah. recovering COVID patients to nursing homes because yep. they, they didn't want to put them in hospitals. Right. Like it's, yep. and no, and nobody brings this up in the media. No, of course wants not. wants to hold them not. accountable for this. Of course not. not the, uh, it's not the favorable narrative. No, that's like the narrative, the 2020 narrative machine has been uh, something to, to, to wonder at. Like it's, it's insane what's going on. So let's dive into this study out of thin air where they really tried to drive the narrative that hydroxychloroquine uh, was a bad, is a bad drug that shouldn't be used for COVID-19. It was, so the, the, name of the paper is hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without a macrolide for treatment of COVID-19, a multinational registry analysis. And this was released by a company named Surgisphere that popped up out of nowhere recently. Uh, and you and other uh, independent researchers sort of debunked this research pretty quickly. Let's dive into the whole story. Yeah. Who's pushing, who's pushing this narrative and, uh, the people involved, like The Lancet, where this was published, is a very respected <laughs> medical journal, correct? Yeah, yeah. So it, um, this was a study that was released on May 22nd, and it was published in The Lancet, which is an almost 200-year-old medical journal. So, uh, you know, not every, the way studies work is, you know, the authors will put together a study and then submit it to a journal, and it goes through a peer review process where, um, a dozen or more uh, experts in that specific field will review the paper to make sure that the data is correct, that the study conclusions are correct, and basically that the, the whole thing is almost verified in a way. And so there's good journals, and there's, you know, and this is just from the academics way of looking at it. There's kind of good journals, and there's, there's you know, poor journals. And so everyone is aiming to get like the best journal possible. So The Lancet is arguably the best medical journal, one of the best medical journals in, in the world. You have the New England Journal of Medicine as well, which is really great, which they also uh, are relevant in this story, which I'll bring up later. Um, and so you have this, so when physicians or scientists see an article published in The Lancet, that's almost like God's word. That was like the stamp of approval by the, you know, the most professional journal in the space. And so when that study came out uh, on May 22nd, it was really immediately you had all these uh, blue check marks on Twitter and the professionals, the you know, academics. So they say, see, we told you hydroxychloroquine is dangerous and it's killing people because a study came out showing that it increased your risk of dying uh, in hospitalized patients. And it was a study of 96,000 patients, so an observational study with 96,000 patients, about 15,000 of them received treatment with either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Uh, when they say macrolide in that title, that just kind of basically mostly means azithromycin, um, but these are these medications as well. 
Um, and so the very quickly, the World Health Organization, which had been opposed, you know, had kind of been leaning biased against hydroxychloroquine, I would say from the beginning, over a weekend after deliberating on this study, so the study came out on a Friday, by Monday they announced they were stopping all clinical trials on hydroxychloroquine in about 17 different countries, and was actually, you know, trying to convince countries to stop doing the clinical studies on hydroxychloroquine because they said it was harmful over a 72 hour period. So, um, it was a, so it, it was a study that had a lot of impact on a lot of physicians, researchers across the world and the way patients were cared for. Um, the study was very peculiar to a lot of us um, who were doing independent research, as you said, on, uh, on hydroxychloroquine. Because first of all, it was very odd that this actually doubled your risk of mortality. I could see it not having an effect in patients treated uh, with COVID, treated late with, uh, with hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19, but to actually double your risk of dying seemed uh, not in line with, with other articles. Um, in addition to that, the, the first tip off was the, the data didn't really make sense, right? So the first, so first of all, uh, certain baseline characteristics of the populations that were in the study didn't really line up with the kind of known uh, baseline characteristics for those particular continents. Um, but that was kind of soft, right? You can't really say, oh, a study is fake because, you know, the numbers don't seem that, you know, the baseline characteristics, maybe certain people had more risk. And so there's a lot of confounding variables for that. But the other thing that really kind of came to light was uh, they said that this study had 73 deaths in Australia um, by April 21st, which is when they kind of concluded the study following patients. And if you look at the Johns Hopkins database, the COVID tracking project, there's only, uh, there's only 67 deaths in Australia at the time. So it was actually physically impossible for them to have data on that many patients because they didn't exist. The authors in the Lancet quickly came out within about a day or two, um, a response saying, oh, we accidentally had the wrong hospital located in Australia that's actually part of Asia. And so that's why we had the extra deaths in Australia. Nothing to see here. Um, small, small change, but the conclusions of the study are no different. That really um, convinced me that there was more going on behind this study and that the data was probably just entirely fabricated. Um, and so that's when I took a deep dive into uh, the study. And so there's kind of two sides. There's, there's more evidence that the data didn't make sense. Um, that's kind of nitty gritty and boring. So maybe I won't, I don't know if your listeners want me to go into that too much, but the other things, but the data was all hidden in this black box of this company called Surgisphere. This was a, a and um, and people because people when the Australia uh, information go they're saying okay well show us the data now you already made one mistake you you kind of failed that one so now we want to review the data ourselves and the author said oh no this is a this is, this data is in Surgisphere this company they want to analyze it you know you can't expose it to the public because of agreements this and that and so I was like okay well let me look at Surgisphere since that's who we're apparently supposed to trust in this whole study and. <laughs> The further I went into Surgisphere, the, just the more unbelievable the story became. Um, first off, you go to their website. It's, um, you know, it, uh, it looks like an ICO website. 
<laughs> it's uh, a lot of flashy words, uh, diagrams. It's uh, you know machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know case studies, no real research. So for this massive database that claimed that they had uh, data on 240 million patient encounters, partnerships with 1,200 hospitals uh, in like 45 different countries. Um, there's no research that they really published besides one study earlier, about uh, three weeks earlier. Um, but the rest of it were just kind of hyping up the use cases for their project. That was a little bit fishy. But then it was, okay, let me look at the team. All right, so what they're claiming to build requires uh, software engineers. It requires physicians, uh, you know, PR team, uh, you know, a lot of business people to, to make these partnerships and collect all this data, analyze it, go through it. Huge, huge team over many months. They had one person on their website. It was just the founder, this Dr. Sapan Desai guy, who was also an author of the study. And, uh, and so I was like, well, okay, let me see who else. Maybe, maybe on LinkedIn or something, there's, there's uh, a bigger team. So I go to LinkedIn under Surgisphere. They have their own little company profile on there. And there's five employees. So again, the founder, the medical doctor um, in Chicago, I believe, that area. And then there's a, you know, a VP of business development and then I think a VP of sales and marketing um, who just joined the company two months ago, both of them, as well as two science freelance writers, basically. So four other people all just joined the company two to three months ago. Um, one of them, the, the VP of business, looks like he's still working for another company. So obviously not a, a full-time team that is looking to, you know, that is analyzing all this data. Um, then if you go look at, so then I was like, okay, well, let me look at their subsidiary companies. Maybe they have other companies that are, that have teams and stuff. So, you know, I looked up, they have, you know, Surgical Outcomes Collaborative, Vascular Outcomes. There's nothing on the internet about those two, essentially. And then there's another one called Quartz Clinical which uh, is kind of, the, it has a little bit more presence online. There's a video out, a promotional video. It's one of those uh, videos that's kind of shot with like a trade show with a little bit like a professional camera where it has the founder sitting there in front of his booth saying, you know, talking highly of, of Surgisphere. And then it goes to the, what comes up on the screen as Surgisphere Director of Sales. And it's this young woman uh, talking about her, you know, what she's done at, at Surgisphere in a very professional way and everything. And this was actually came from my followers. <laughs> I got a lot of messages about this, but she's, she's actually just an adult model for hire. And, and not only that, but she's actually like, she's, she's, it's erotic. It's erotic. (laughs) And I, I got a lot of, a lot of DMS about that. Um, I was like, I can't look at it anymore. But Uh, what the hell is going uh, on? So it was like, um, wow. Okay. And, and then it's like, just the whole, and then if you look in the internet archives for Surgisphere, because I was like, hey, well, what is this company actually like? What have they been saying in the past? It's weird. The response is, sorry, this, uh, this web page has been excluded from the Wayback Machine, which is, is very different from uh, a website that somebody says, you know, uh, hmm, we don't have you know, information on this site, as in they didn't collect it. But this one is actually excluded. And so I did some researching on that, and it looks like you got a, a company there has to request it removed or try to hide it with, uh, you know, hide from the crawlers in some way. And so it's a lot of sketchy things that went on. We were going on behind the scenes with it. Um, and then not to mention the, the founder uh, is involved and it looks like three malpractice lawsuits that are you know, going on right now. Um, and 
yeah, just a whole lot of, of sketchy, sketchy stuff with the company. And wasn't uh, there a Harvard doctor involved with this as well? Yeah. So this is, you know, it, it's, it's sad because, it, I don't know, you can call it sad or not, but a lot, this entire thing is, is going to be, I think, pinned on Surgisphere and the founder of Surgisphere. But the other authors of the study, the lead author is, is a Harvard physician. And, um, you know, and, and the rest of the team is very prestigious. This, this founder is just one member of that team who uh, participated in the study, but he wasn't the lead author. And the, if, if you're a prestigious lead author, wouldn't you review the data that you're putting your name behind and probably one of the most controversial and, and largest uh, you know, impact studies in the whole pandemic? Like, how could you not? And, um, and so, yeah, it was like the whole, and so what we're seeing now is everyone is shifting the blame, right? Because now the study's been retracted. It was formally retracted uh, yesterday. Um, and there's actually, in the New England Journal of Medicine also put out a study uh, using the same database, they're just here, same author. So these authors had two cracks at it to go through this data and determine something fishy was up. And they, they failed both times. Uh, the first article is just about um, basically cardiovascular effects of COVID-19 using their massive database and stuff. So that study was attracted by New England Journal of Medicine yesterday as well. But what you have is you have the World Health Organization. If you look at kind of the, the, the largest impact organizations down to the lowest, the World Health Organization impacted the world and said that they stopped those trials based on the results of this Lancet study. And you have the chief scientist of the World Health Organization just tweeted yesterday saying, you know, oh, well, we don't have time to really read every study that's published. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, we just rely on the, you know, the authenticity of our, our, of our sources. So basically saying just outright, like, we didn't do any due diligence on this study. We, uh, we left that to Twitter. Um, which, good job, guys. It's the exact opposite of Bitcoin. Right. Trust, don't verify. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so they're just putting it on. So the World Health Organization is saying the Lancet. It's like, oh, well, you know, we trust the Lancet, and they dropped the ball on this one. And then you have the Lancet, who is basically saying, well, no, look, the, the authors, you know, we trust the authors. You know, the attestation um, on the article said that Dr. Mera, the lead author, as well as Dr. Patel, another author, had access to the data and attested to, to the accuracy of it. So it's the author's fault. And then the authors, every, they, they're the ones that kind of put out the retraction letter, and they're sitting there saying, well, no, look, we, uh, you know, we, the, the founder of Surgisphere won't give us access to the data to do the internal audit, so it, it's his fault. And then the Surgisphere guy is sitting there saying, oh, well, I get the de-identified data from the hospitals. I don't even, I don't even know where the data comes from. <laughs> so, no one, no, so apparently no one's to blame. It just This whole study came out of, of no real data. Yeah, and it's, it's so perplexing, right? Is it incompetence or straight-up malice? Like, was the World Health Organization looking to just check a box like, hey, this study exists in the Lancet? And once that happens, we can say, all right, drop hydroxychloroquine uh, as, as a, a treatment for this, for this virus. Uh, it seems like, I mean, just as an observer and throughout this whole ordeal with this drug particularly, it seems like they've just been looking for reasons to, to get it off the table. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I think there's enough information out there where everyone can kind of connect the dots themselves. But, uh, you know, if it's truly just negligence, like to, to get through that many professional organizations that, that do this for a full-time job and missed it, whereas, you know, uh, community on Twitter essentially is where a lot of this, uh, a lot of the, you know, this investigation actually developed and matured, uh, figured out this study was a total sham in the matter of days. <laughs> like, you know, I, I put out my article, which is really a, not only my uh, analysis and investigation tool, but it's actually, I, I got to give a ton of credit to my Twitter followers and, and the community on there is discussing this. I get so many messages uh, every day of people saying, Hey, did you look at this? Hey, you know, did you know, you know, she's an adult model. Did you know, blah, blah. And so like, it was really coming together of all that, that uh, is the reason I put out an article on uh, May 29th saying, you know, a study out of thin air is what I called it. And it was basically a, a deep dive into surgisphere. And so this was actually the first deep dive into surgisphere uh, that was, was ever written. There's really nothing out about them uh, before this. And then I think three or four days later, The Guardian came out with a pretty good piece um, investigating surgisphere. And then, uh, you know, two, three days later, the, uh, it's, the article was retracted. But the for, for Twitter to do the job of all these people, it, it, I mean, maybe that's the future of, uh, of publications, like preprints with a decentralized peer review. I don't know. I mean, I trust that more than what's being, being put out. What does it say about the state of the medical industry um, globally? Like, are these institutions like the World Health Organization, CDC, sort of is the curtain being drawn and the wizard of Oz is being shown here that these people really don't, uh, have as much control or, or they may have perverse incentives than, than some may be led to believe. Well, I mean, just, just look at the world health organization. You know, what, what in this pandemic have they been right about? <laughs> like in any of their, their big kind of decisions or announcements, they've been essentially wrong, you know, no human to human transmission. Oh, there is human to human transmission. Uh, no, you don't need travel restrictions. That's not going to help. Oh, actually, you, know, you should probably stop travel. Um, you know, masks or no masks. I don't, I mean, they kind of seem to be vacillating a bit on that one. So I don't, I guess nowadays they're saying no masks. Um, the, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine, you know, the study it's, they've just been kind of, you know, for an organization where this is your job, you had, you had one job in a pandemic and, uh, to fail this miserably at it, you know, it, it, is it, uh, yeah, it's, are, they, are they stupid? I mean, they're probably not stupid, right? So is there something higher that's going on? Maybe. Yeah, I'm ready to go full Alex Jones on this one. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, boy. They, like pushing, like pushing the, the vaccines too. And so let's, let's talk about the vaccines for a little bit. Like we don't have a vaccine for the common cold, which is a, another coronavirus. Like it seems that this coronavirus, COVID-19, has already mutated dozens of times if if i recall correctly there's some evidence for that it's that's kind of a little bit up for debate still but my suspicion is it has like would but do we need to wait for a vaccine before we can open up like would a vaccine even be effective for for this particular type of virus yeah so the common cold is is kind of a collection of, of different viruses that um that people catch they're just kind of all kind of lumped under the, the common cold um, but yeah, there, there really isn't, there's not a vaccine for the common cold. There's flu vaccines and everyone will admit that, that flu vaccines are only partially effective, 
there's not there's not really randomized controlled trials of flu vaccines before they put them out every year. It's not like they are have studied it and determined it's effective or not. They just kind of select uh, strains of virus that are going around that seem to be gaining traction and then put that in the, the vial and then you get that flu vaccine. And so some years it seems like it's maybe effective, some it's not. So, uh, you know, a coronavirus vaccine, uh, you know, it really isn't, you know, there isn't one that exists. So I think a lot of people take for granted, say, oh, yeah, no, they'll, they'll be able to make a vaccine. They can do anything. Two things. First of all, you know, they can make a vaccine, but who knows if it works? <laughs> um, there's probably not going to be very good randomized controlled trials uh, on this vaccine before they start injecting people with it. You know, and even if they are, let's say, able to successfully do this, there has to be safety studies. You know, no one knows maybe how this vaccine will interact if you do catch the virus later, whether it, you know, it can, you know, make the illness worse for you, whether it has any effects on different viruses, maybe it increases your risk of dying from the flu. There's just a lot of unknowns there. So with this, you know, anticipation of having an effective vaccine in the next, you know, six months or, you know, nine months even is, is really not accurate. And if that does happen, I would really question the, the rigors of the you know safety and efficacy testing of that drug of that vaccine and so this idea of we're not going to open up until a vaccine comes is i think pretty crazy because we don't know if it will come and are we going to stay under lockdown for uh, you know a year yeah it's again like the alex jones thoughts in my mind <laughs> like they're trying to control us but it's like you you mentioned like secondary tertiary effects of this vaccine one of which being like how will it interact with other viruses didn't it come out that this year's flu shot actually made uh your chances of dying from covid a bit higher uh, especially in italy yeah so i've seen that um that article and some commentary on that i honestly didn't do a deep enough dive to determine how accurate that is so i don't want to say anything that i don't i don't fully know but i did see that and that could be true yeah, regardless of this particular flu vaccine, uh, what did make people more susceptible to mortality via COVID? So it's definitely this a possibility. Could, definitely a possibility. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it could be that could be a um, a side effect of these of these yearly vaccines. Right, and then the, and then it becomes you know in, in medicine you're always weighing the the benefit and the harm, and so if the fatality rate of this disease is actually quite low. What's riskier, injecting you know, 200, 300 million people in the U.S. with a vaccine that's barely tested or, or maybe, you know, taking a, a 0.1, fatality rate? I don't know. I mean, that's maybe a decision. Yeah. And this all gets back to incentives. Uh, this whole saga of hydroxychloroquine profit incentives, particularly to me, at least this is what it seems like. Just I believe that Big Pharma wants to push drugs that will make them profit uh, obscenely on the public instead of this generic drug. So as a doctor, what do you think of the, the current financial in incentives that exist throughout the medical world? Like, do we need a restructuring of the way medicine is created, how it's patented, um, how much power these big pharma companies have, how much lobbying they're allowed to do, how much control they have over these organizations like the world health organization? Like, is there, a need for, for mass disruption across the industry? That is uh, such a, the question is not hard. I would say, yes, it, you know, there does need to be a big change. What that change uh, 
would look like and you know the effects of doing one thing and how that kind of you know affects the whole rest of the, the space or the free market and all this other stuff is is tough and um so i don't know but there needs to be big changes because yeah you have uh i mean there's a lot of conflicts of interest at the world health organization level and the cdc level um between big pharma and and politics it's 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 obvious if you look at you know if you look at almost any of these higher up people who have relations with the world health organization or are, are tweeting about hydroxychloroquine negatively just google search gilead plus their name it almost always comes up they were either funded by gilead at some point or they you know had did research for them or something along those lines not always but a lot of the time am i saying that they are now uh you know acting in uh in bad faith no not always but there are conflicts of interest there that i think can't be ignored yeah and bill gates would certainly make a lot of money if a if a vaccine yeah. came out and so and so right so exactly so you have these people that can profit immensely and then also in control of, of politics in some way or, or, or close friends with people that are and so you you have a kind of a tight-knit group where you know they have a kind of a license to, to almost do whatever they want yeah it's really weird that bill gates has become like a a virus expert and yeah. vac vaccination expert sort of out of nowhere Went from microsoft to vaccining the world well you know computer viruses human viruses you <laughs> well, should stop the computer well, viruses first right exactly yeah <laughs> if we're going to use heuristics here we should probably not give him control of uh of human viruses because we'll let apple take care of that job. or something <laughs> right yeah. the human yeah. viruses uh and it's well it seems like things are changing. Trump has decided to walk away from the World Health Organization, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, it looks like he formally announced that uh, last week. Um, so yeah, he's uh, he's putting pressure on these organizations in one way or another. It's uh, going to be interesting to see the long-term effects of it. Um, but yeah, it's he's shaking things up, that's for sure. Yeah. And no, because it's crazy to see people have been getting canceled left and right. Like the two doctors in California came out with that YouTube video. They got scrubbed. Yeah. Um, Alex, is the last name Brenson? Yeah, Brenson. Yeah. He just got, um, he just got censored by Amazon, but then they uncensored him. Did they uncensor him? I didn't. I didn't see the follow up on that. I think. I think it, they wound Elon up. Elon Musk came uh, to the rescue, right? <laughs> I think Elon yeah, I Musk uh, commented on Alex Brenson's post saying that that was unbelievable, and then uh, tagged Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's yeah. So let's get into the topic of censorship yeah. like, again. Your Google Doc was censored. These doctors are getting censored from YouTube. Susan Wojcicki, CEO of YouTube, came yep. out and said that anything against the World Health Organization is going to get scrubbed, including people telling others to take vitamin C. It's like what the <laughs> fuck is going on? I know. So. You know, I think for uh, a lot of us who are in the, you know, very familiar with Bitcoin, the Bitcoin space, you know, we're very familiar with the censorship and what's what's going on. And a lot of, you know, uh, kind of well-known people have gotten kind of canceled on and off or, you know, suspended from Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or other social media platforms. But I think it really became more apparent during this pandemic when these social media platforms took such an aggressive stance on it. So... 
like you said, you know, our Google Doc was, uh, it's, it's still, you can't see it. So it's, it's pretty crazy. The first widely disseminated document on this potential treatment for coronavirus that triggered, you know, hundreds of clinical trials worldwide. So even regardless whether you say it's effective or not, there's very, uh, you know, very smart, well-known scientists and physicians out there that stand behind this treatment and there's others on the other side of the table saying it doesn't work, but it, it's still a good debate. You can't even view that original Google document because it's still down per Google, um, which is unbelievable. And then you have the, uh, the, you have the Bakersfield doctors. So they were uh, a couple of doctors at an urgent care center that uh, did a little video, a YouTube video. It wasn't little, it was like an hour long or so. But they're basically looking at, you know, in their testing, in their center, they determined that the uh, actual prevalence of COVID-19 is higher than people were anticipating based on, you know, COVID-19 PCR testing. And the media attacked them and said their, you know, their approach was flawed. They, they, it was irresponsible for them to announce that. And YouTube pulled down their video. And this is actually a video Elon Musk tweeted out. So Elon Musk actually has two, uh, two strikes against him <laughs> when it comes to censorship. He tweeted out our Google document, which the Google document was in like, was, you know, terminated. And then he tweeted out these Bakersfield doctors YouTube video, which was then censored. <laughs> um, so he has a, he has a, a knack for finding content that the media doesn't want out there apparently. Um, Elon, don't retweet this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll be, you'll be faint. You'll be like even more famous for like uh, 24 hours and you'll be gone. <laughs> <laughs> the Streisand effect, maybe the Streisand effect will come in. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but it, it's crazy. Like what these doctors said actually essentially became kind of the predominant thought was, oh yeah, okay, this, you know, COVID-19 is more infectious and widespread than we thought. You know, it is, this serology testing isn't actually that unreliable. It is, you know, fairly reliable. And so, yeah. Well, I was going to say, and then they talked a lot of sense about virology and immunology. Hey, like yeah. we do need, we do need exposure to these viruses to some extent if we ever want to build immunity. You can't sterilize the world, right? It'll and make things worse in the long run, right? And so these are these are qualified physicians who are speaking very reasonably. This isn't, you know, even some crazy thing. Which I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of censorship in really almost any, in a, almost any case. But it's something that's unbelievable that they were pulled down from each. So that's why I actually created the, uh, the website Medicine Uncensored, which is where the first place I published uh, my investigation into Surgisphere. It's because I thought that was critical during this pandemic um, for the, the right information to get out there. And, um, and so that's, that's why I have it. So we ha you have the Bakersfield doctors. You have other, uh, another, another well-known doctor that was saying something the media didn't like, and he was pulled off, I think, Facebook uh, for that, or, or YouTube again, I think. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's been a, a super aggressive stance by YouTube, Facebook, and uh, Twitter. You know, Twitter, it, um, it, they seem to be the most free out of the, the three. If you look at Twitter, Facebook, and uh, YouTube, it seems to be the, the free. I really, really hope it, it stays that way because I think there's a lot of, of good intellectual content and dissenting opinions that are circulated on, on Twitter, at least from my experience throughout this pandemic. And so, you know, I really would hope that, you know, Twitter's leadership, Jack Dorsey, um, would uh, would try to maintain that that freedom and yeah. There's a lot of pressure for him not to. <laughs> I know, I know. It's gonna right. be. It's it's. I don't know. We'll see how it plays. I think that's gonna be. So one thing I'd say is gonna be a very big. Um, whether you want to call it narrative or focus over the next couple of years is this idea of censorship resistance. We now, you know, 
social media platforms really almost, you know, they kind of dominate the way people communicate now. And so if you're, you know, maybe five years ago, you, you know, you were no longer able to, you know, you couldn't tweet out what you were having for breakfast or whatever. That was like, oh, okay, maybe that's not that big of a loss. But now, you know, that's, you know, predominant way of people getting their news, um, of spreading their, their word. You're no longer standing with a, you know, a big microphone in the, sh in the streets or whatever, as you maybe did a hundred years ago. You're, you're communicating on these platforms. And so when you, when you lose that, you're effectively being silenced and you can say you uh, can just go to another platform, but you know, as you know, and, and anyone that's built a reputation on it, if you get canceled from, from let's say YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and then as in the case with uh, Brenson, you know, Amazon won't sell your book, it's going to be really hard to get your message out there. <laughs> like, how are you going to do it? You can't even sell a book right. now other than Amazon basically, you know, they go up to the local bookstore and say, here's my book. Yeah, that's a huge debate that's raging right now. Like, do these private companies owe us any, uh, owe us these these liberties? Uh, Nick Carter made a good case for it the other week, I think. Uh, like like you mentioned, like building a reputation with a particular namespace, like at Marty Bent. Like, I've built a reputation over the last nine years yeah. on this site, and it feels like a property that I own and have tended to for quite some time. Sure. And, it would suck to get that ripped away from me. It would, I mean, I think that there's a lot of people out there that would rather move to a different, like let's say they had the option, like because people, you know, to, to move to a different country or lose all of their, you know, social status or standing on these platforms or career. I think, you know, a lot of them would be like, okay, well, you know, I, I could move to a different country like that. I can maybe rebuild quicker, my life quicker there than trying to start from scratch in, in you know, social media and maybe a whole different obscure channel. Um, the other thing that's, uh, that's interesting is, the, you know, the debate between whether they're publishers or platforms. Um, and so, you know, right now, these social media platforms are really protected from liability because they're supposedly a, a platform for just, you know, discussion. But it, once they get into the, you know, once they start aggressively censoring or making their own commentary on certain content, you know, are they moving more into the, you know, the publication publisher space? which then comes with a whole different liability. I think it's a very uh, important topic. And, um, and I think this idea of censorship will be a, a recurring theme over the next few years. Yeah. Section 230 yep, exactly. is a big contention exactly. um, right now. If, if that gets taken there, they become publishers and you don't want to see that. And that's like the fucked up thing is like the blue check marks that bring in their own demise. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. Like, I'm now a blue check Trump's mark. I'm one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But everybody wanting to censor Trump, it's like, all right, I know you hate him and you want to do it. And he says some stupid things sometimes, but you're really uh, digging everybody's grave if you if you try to make a point with him particularly. Yeah, I mean, you, like you said, like, I would hate for these platforms to be uh, labeled as publishers. Like that would, that would, I think, kill them pretty quickly, honestly. Maybe that'd be a chance for them to be born in a different way that it could be very quickly replaced. I don't know. But I think that you know, staying a platform with with uncensored content is the goal in my mind. Yeah, first they came for Milo. Yeah, <laughs> and I said nothing. But it, ah, no, I think I mean sadly, I think the, the censorship is going to be a huge topic. But the entropy has already started. Yeah, um, the entropy on on free speech on these platforms. So. Hopefully we can f find an alternative over time. But again, that'll take time. Twitter took 
well over a decade to cement itself as I I've said it many times on this podcast, Twitter's the best communication tool that's ever existed. And the fact that I was able to follow your research on Twitter, DM you like, Hey, let's have a conversation. It's incredible. Crypto is what brought me to Twitter. I had no interest in Twitter until, uh, you know, 2015, 2016, where I, because I started on Bitcoin talk. So 2013, 2014, I was on the Bitcoin talk forums. That's where I thought a lot of the, the newest content came from. But then, I, you know, in 2015, 2016, I realized it's actually Twitter where you have a lot of the intellectual discussion on this, um, especially when they expanded the number of character limits on, the, uh, on each message. I think that was huge for uh, facilitating more intelligent conversation on there. And now I think it, uh, if, you know, it's funny. If you look at a journalism, you know, a lot of journalists, reporters, their references are often tweets, right? <laughs> That's like what they're doing. <laughs> and my newsletter is mainly references. Right. Tweets. It's like, that's the content now. You don't, you don't leave your computer like, oh, okay, this guy tweeted this. It's very interesting. And this comment, I'm going to write an article about that tweet. And so if you want to go to the source, you know, it's right there. It's public. You can see it. And so it's, I think that's been great for, for crypto, Bitcoin. It's been great for, you know, COVID-19. And I think it'll continue to be great for anything that's a, a you know, hot topic where research can, can advance it. Yeah. Um, I guess we should end it on what uh, I, I know you probably haven't had a lot of time to pay attention to it, but what are your current thoughts on Bitcoin, the state of the network, uh, the market structure? What are, what are you looking at particularly, if anything? Gosh, I would say, you know, I'm just going to keep it super, super high level. But I think the next, I think with this pandemic and uh, the, you know, the way they're printing money and whether they have to do that again in the fall, if, you know, a lot of the fear comes back and the stock market kind of takes a hit and, uh, you know, if they're even printing more money, I think that, you know, long term, this is, this is very good for Bitcoin, as we all know. They have some ups and downs uh, price wise, if we're going to just talk about price. Yeah, the fall, you know, it could, it could again have a little, you know, a spike down um, if the COVID-19, either if there really is a, a true second wave or if there is, you know, enough concern of one. Uh, but in the long run, I think it's, I think, I think it's going to be a phenomenal two to three years for Bitcoin. Phenomenal. I do as well. Uh, we might be biased. Yeah. I don't know, but I think that the- <laughs> definitely this is a, a Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> but I wear my bias on my sleeve. That's right. Um, I, I uh, dropped before- the Bitcoin on, on this one and uh, Bitcoin on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you gave a very unbiased view of you gave both sides. That's why I like uh, to come uh, in the podcast. I like to do a little bit because like sometimes you don't you don't catch the nuances on Twitter, so. Right. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, he's just like, you know, 100%, you know, one thing. And it, there's, a, there's a lot more nuances to it. There's so much nuance. So much nuance in every every subject, even these riots right now. Yeah. But we won't get into yeah. that. Before before we wrap up here, uh, do you have any, like, final thoughts, parting notes for the freaks out there on, on COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine, the research you're doing? Um Medicine uncensored. It's got a very good drudge vibe. <laughs> drudge, drudge is uh, no longer kind of, I think, getting the news out there that isn't already mainstream like it was uh, a year ago. So that was also one of the things that uh, caught my attention is I think that people are very familiar with the drudge format, but uh, no longer go to drudge for that, that content that they were previously looking for. Um, that's very interesting. But, you know, like we say, you know, like we say with Bitcoin, you know, do your own research. And it applies to Bitcoin. It applies to, to COVID nineteen. I mean, if you're sitting there reading headlines, and that's your that's how you're making your decisions on whether you wear a mask or whether you uh, you know 
go out or go to the park or go to the beach, then you're, you're probably going to be not living your life the right way. But if you actually really care or any of these, you know, these kind of different, you know, choices impact your lives, then, then do your own research, find the content out there that's not being just pushed by the, the mainstream narrative. I would co-sign that message. If imagine, just imagine how wrong they are about Bitcoin, and then start applying that to other. I know other subjects. That's going to be a, a, a yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. If you, which that was that was eye opening for me, uh, you know, a year or two ago was uh, they're this wrong about Bitcoin. You know, you can't. And, and it's, so whatever you special, any specialist that reads the news, says, oh my gosh, they're they're wrong on it, which makes you think that they're what are they right about? Right. Exactly. Well. Dr. Tadero, I really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. It's very important and um, brave, brave work in a, in a time when you could easily be, be canceled. So thank you for uh, jumping to the front lines on this, on this battle for sanity. Thanks so much, Marty, for having me. Have a great uh, rest of your morning. You as well. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Take